Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is February the 8th, 2024, and I consider the discussion today to be a special event because it's a somewhat different event. We're taking a break from talking about immigration tax, the intersection of these things, all of which we know from previous podcasts generally tend towards massive injustice. And as sort of, I think, an interesting interlude today, we are going to talk about the concept of compassionate justice, since that is clearly lacking in both the tax and immigration system. And in that context, I had the great fortune recently to meet the founders and the movers and shakers behind an organization called Compassionate Justice based in Toronto who for years have hosted some amazing speakers to talk about this issue. Primarily, I think, related to how the prison system works and that, but probably as good, I think that the way a society treats its marginalized and those who are incarcerated tells us a great deal about the society as a whole. So it really is my distinct privilege, honor, pleasure to introduce to you today uh, the movers and shakers behind the uh, Compassionate Justice Organization, Dan Lang, Jim Black, and Ben Levin. And why don't we begin first with each of you, uh, introduce yourselves a little better and how you got involved in this great movement and how long, etc. So, Dan, shall we start with you? Sure. How we got involved, this actually started in the basement of our church about 14 years ago. And Jim Black, who's with us as well, he and I were there at that particular evening. And from there, we decided to really develop the whole compassionate justice concept in the series. So Jim and myself are both the server, in the sense, the driving founders of the series. So that's my story. All right. Well, sounds like the founding fathers, the founding yeah. fathers and, well, and the driving fathers. Jim? Did I jump in in that connection? Absolutely. Only, only to say that, Ben, you know, we were there day one, and there was another party who came up with the idea. And that's in. so, in a way, we uh, we are standing on the shoulders of Gene Bruce. And I will say that Gene has been a an important force in my life. Now, now deceased, unfortunately, but which has also led to work with ex-offenders and becoming friends with and mentors of those who have suffered, been touched by the criminal justice system and uh, and are in need of help in some cases, but certainly in need of friendship. And so while compassionate justice focuses on education and an enlightened citizenry, uh, we're also involved in a more flesh and blood way, in a more intimate way with these same people. That's great. And, and Ben, how long have you been involved in this? Oh, I, I'm a newcomer. I can't claim any credit whatsoever as being a founder. This was going along very well when I got involved. In fact, I started by going to a couple of the events at the church. And then it occurred to me to ask if they had some room or some need for another person to help. And that's how I got involved. That would be about five or six years ago, I, something like that. 
So you're not a founder, but you're a clear driver. But you're a clear driver. Definitely a mover and shaker. So a driver, a mover, a shaker. Well, this is this is really good. And you know, for a number of years, I saw the ads in the, the Globe and Mail. We'll talk about that in a second. But but I also have seen the ads and you know and started going to them. And 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 honestly, I I encourage any and all people listening to this to attend some of these events because they are really, really first rate. The the speakers have been uh, and continue to be, I think, absolutely amazing. Chief Justice, uh, former Chief Justice uh, McLaughlin, I was there last year. This year on April the seventh, in fact, former Supreme Court of Canada Rosalia Bella uh, will be speaking, who was the subject of a, a recent documentary, uh, which was called what? Does it? What was the name of the the documentary that just came out? Something about Supreme Justice. Anyway, if, if somebody were to do a, a great, a great profile, not only of the substance of her contribution, but of her personality and the, she and Irving Obella are one very interesting couple. No, I, absolutely. But this gives you a sense of the, you know, of not only, okay, I hope you can see the quality of the movers and shakers here. Okay. But, you know, the quality of the movers and shakers here has you know, managed to bring some tremendous, some tremendous speakers. And, you know, I suppose that my interest in this to some extent was years ago when I was in law school, I had the opportunity to teach a couple of days a week at Joyceville Penitentiary. Mm. There was a community college. I think it was, at the time, I think it may have been called St. Lawrence Community. It is. It is. It is. still there under that name. Yeah. So they had some kind of a business program where a diploma was available to people who, you know, satisfied a certain number of course completions. And I actually taught incredibly the law course, the business law course. And it was for me, it was, you know, I think an experience, I wouldn't go so far as to say it changed my life, but I would say that it definitely gave me an awareness of a lot of stuff that I don't think I would have had absent that. Yeah, John, let me let me sort of pick up on what you're saying too, because it's certainly interesting as to what got us involved in, in this area. And I'll go back to the time 14 years ago when we sat in the church basement and we had a presentation by Tony Dew. Now, Tony basically is the grandfather of criminology in Canada, incredibly knowledgeable in the whole field. And one of the basic things that he pointed out was that, you know, the incidence of crime in this country has been going down for the past 20 to 30 years, and yet the incarceration rate has been going up steadily for the last 20 to 30 years. What is going on here? You know, that's, I think, one of the things that really sort of, for myself anyways, really got me engaged as to what's really happening here in our justice system. And then there's another side of it, too. You know, there's the, that's sort of the head side of it. There's also the heart side. We had a fellow named Gordy come in, and Gordy was probably in his mid mid late fifties, early sixties at that point. And Gordy had spent the better part of his life in and out of jail from the age of sixteen on. And and I was so impressed with him. He he was incredibly honest. He didn't blame anybody for his life, his existence. He took full responsibility for it. And, you know, as I sat and listened to Gordy, and I really liked him, I said to myself, you know, but therefore the grace of God could, could go any of us. 
you know, and that really hit me, you know, because prior to that, you know, we tend, those of us who are not involved in this, in this world, you know, we look at people who have been incarcerated, well, they're criminals, they're, they're bad people, you know, they're, they're the other, if you will, you know, and yet, you know, and this is subsequently proven true for me anyways, as I've met more and more people who've been through, you know, the criminal justice experience, and you realize they're good people just like the rest of us. You know, yeah. no different. To, to that point, there's there's some quite interesting research on how many people have actually committed an act which could have landed them with a prison sentence. And these studies show that that's typically 75 to 80% of any group of people you might meet. So had things gone differently for them, any of those people could have had a criminal record. And in fact, something like 4 million adult Canadians do have a criminal record, which when you think about it is about one in eight adults in the country. So that means you're very likely to know more than one person, several people who have criminal records, whether they've disclosed that to you or not. Yes. Criminality, as we define it in the law, is very, very common. It's not the exception. It's actually the rule. Well, yeah. you know, as I remember the first time I was exposed to a criminal law class, I mean, you know, the quote, what is a crime? And the, well, unfortunately, a crime in our world is anything the government defines as a crime without regard to its moral implications. Yes. And, you know, that's a real problem, Jim. And in that connection, John, uh, people, some of the people we work with and see and, and become close friends with, have made a been the wrong place, wrong time, made wrong decisions, obviously, and take responsibility for it, and are being judged by the worst thing they ever did. And that, and with the uh, the criminal record, that looms and haunts them for the balance of their life. And they, when they come out without necessarily much help or much correction activity, they are. Uh, they are lost and, and frightened quite often and, well, and have no friends. The family may have abandoned them. They uh, continue to uh, consort with the same people that put them in in the first place. I, I think there's that aspect to it. I mean, I remember my reaction, you know, to my experience being in a classroom was that to me, they seemed like everybody else I knew. It's just they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know? You know, coupled with, you know, very, very weak literacy skills, right, that are sort of yep. needed to ah. survive in this world. And, and you know, I had no sense at all that they were bad people. I, I mean, I really did not. And in many ways, I thought they were better people and a lot of people were not incarcerated. And don't underestimate them, John, uh part of a writing group of ex-offenders and consistently, without exception, they are brilliant, brilliant writers and brilliant minds. And what a pleasure it is and an honor just to be part of the, that circle. You know, I I think, think, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah. We, you know, we know quite a bit about the kinds of people who end up in our prison system, generally poor, often visible minorities, people with low education levels, large number of people with substance abuse issues, and a very large number of people with mental health disorders. And, and trauma that traces back to their youth. Yep, yep. 
there are, you know, there are some people, I don't think we can ignore the fact that there are some people around who are dangerous, but that is a small number of people compared to the 35,000 or so that we have locked up in this country on any given day. Well, which raises the question, you know, which I think to some extent brings all four of us together is, why is the solution to this mass incarceration? And a, a significant portion, Ben, perhaps you can give us some numbers, that the significant portion of that total you've cited are in remand, awaiting. Yes. They are charged, in fact. They're, they're charged, but they haven't been... Oh, I'm charged, but not tried, yes. Yes. And in relation, uh, in the provincial jails, about 70% of people in provincial jail in Canada have not been found guilty. They're, they're awaiting trial or they're awaiting a bail hearing or they're awaiting something. And of those, about half, nearly half, will not be convicted of anything either in the long run. That, that We know that as well. I mean, I've been out of this, you know, for, for a professional way for many, many years, but but I thought that presumptively they were supposed to be released. They weren't supposed to be held. Yes, we have three Supreme Court decisions now in Canada saying the system is too reluctant to give bail. But then we have what happened last year with the provincial premiers and the, you know, the police chiefs all saying, we're giving bailout way too easily and the media running endless stories about it and the federal government introducing a bill to make bail harder to get. Hmm. And this comes back to your earlier question, John, about why do we rely on this? My own answer to this is that criminal justice is a world, I, I spent a lot of my life in public policy. Criminal justice is a world that is particularly driven by emotion and it's particularly driven by the emotions of fear anger and disgust. And those are very powerful emotions. They do not lead people to want to sit down, look at the facts and think through what the best responses might be. They lead people to want to lash out. So I think our criminal justice system and the laws that you correctly point out drive it, that's driven by people's fear, which is often stoked yes. for political purposes. And uninformed often. Yes. Often. Always. Yes. Yeah. John, one of our speakers along the way was uh, the distinguished Roy McMurtry, Chief Justice of ah. Ontario, and a friend of the program. And he has in a he had an, an ongoing interest in an informed citizenry. And he said that a justice system doesn't work if you're if, if it's embedded in a citizenship, a citizenry that is uninformed or un, uninterested, in fact. So he spent a lot of his waking hours building that, you know, with his own edu judicial institution or, or education uh, institute. And uh, and I would say we are sort of part of that same, that same desire or need, and, and to uh, in fact, create a more educated, informed, and mature audience that can understand the terms. And none of us will understand them fully, but the more, the more engaged we are, the more likely we will understand what those issues are. And that's why people show up at our session in significant numbers. And those who do show up are are stakeholders and do have informed opinions. 
you know, I don't know how anybody could, you know, spend a Sunday afternoon or midday Sunday attending one of your sessions and, you know, come away with a sense that, hey, this is an important issue. And, you know, it'd be good to, you know, get this front and center generally in society. I mean, what I find amazing about it, I'm just speaking more practically for a minute. This is my sort of complete detached. I don't care about anything but the economic side. It is so expensive to keep people locked. I mean, it's beyond insane. You know, these governments running huge deficits and this, that, and the other thing. I don't, I mean, if taxpayers understood how much this was actually costing them to keep this going, I mean, I would mm-hmm. have to think that might be a factor here. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, that is definitely a factor here. You know, the cut. Co- well, John, let me, let, me add, let me talk to that too. I mean, to put some numbers to that, having a woman incarcerated for a year is, I think, about, and Ben, correct me on this one, but I think it's about $230,000 a year. And to have a man incarcerated for a year, I think, is about $140,000 a year in that neighborhood. And, and, for all that money that is invested in keeping people in jail, the system does very little to help them rehabilitate or get back on their feet once they get out. So we've got a system that's hugely ineffective yes. in helping people recover. And at the same time, you look at the alternatives. Well, instead of being in jail, someone could be in a halfway house with you know counselor support and one-third of the cost of keeping that person in jail. Why are we not facilitating the transition out of jail a lot earlier into a situation that would be a lot better for the actual individual in terms of them recovering and getting back into society? And we sit here and we spend huge amounts of money. I mean, I don't want to digress too much, but we're doing the same thing with healthcare here in Ontario. We're spending huge amounts of money to provide, you know, through... OHIP, you know, care from the private sector. It's a huge waste of money. But sorry, that's a bit of an aside, so don't get me going. I don't think it's an aside at all, and I'm waiting for Ben to jump in, you know, with his comments on this. Well, so the cost is clearly ridiculous. You know, it would be far cheaper to send them all to Harvard and Stanford, frankly. It would cost <laughs> half as much money. We'd save a lot of money. But obviously, the cost isn't the main driver. You know, I want to come back to the point I made about this being driven by emotion. And we call it a justice system, but it's really a punishment and revenge system. That's that's really what it's about. It's about people who feel angered or hurt. And when humans feel anger or hurt, they want to lash out. And that's essentially what the criminal justice system mostly does. And it's always, and it always has. Oh, it, it used to be much worse. I mean, we need to remember that, too. You can go back 100 or 200 years and, you know, prison conditions were much worse. People could be put there for very arbitrary reasons. People were executed for stealing a loaf of bread. So in a way, we've modified it. It's it's vastly better than it was. It's just not nearly as what it should be. One other dimension, Ben, there is what uh, Aaron Dan is going to be speaking to February 18th is that People are determined or judged to be criminally not responsible or that they are assigned to a forensic institution, medical institution, without the benefit of a trial and can stay there indefinitely 
without ever having been charged. Well, they, they've been charged, but they haven't been. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Found guilty. Yes. Yeah. The interesting, one of the interesting things about NCR that I'm sure Aaron will talk about is that on average, people who are declared not criminally responsible due to mental illness end up spending more time locked up than people who are convicted or plead guilty. Yes. Uh, that, that's another point that we haven't touched on, which is that 90% of criminal cases that are resolved with a conviction are resolved through pleading guilty. So hardly anyone actually gets a trial. And the system is set up so that if you do choose to go to trial, you will be punished for it. If you lose, you will get a much longer sentence. The system only works because people don't exercise the right to trial. And if even 25% of the people who are accused of crimes chose to go to trial, the entire system would collapse completely. Because even with 8 to 10% going to trial, we can't cope and cases are being thrown out because we can't meet the timelines. And I want to add to what Ben's saying here. Keep in mind, you know, all those situations are settled out of court where someone pleads guilty and avoids the whole process of a trial and they've got a reduced sentence. What the percentage of those people actually pleading that even though they are not guilty? So in other words, people are willing to live with a lifetime label being criminal just to avoid the risk of going to court. And they're prepared to, to say that they're guilty when in fact they're not because the alternative for them is so horrific. They're prepared to do that. It's well, tragic. There are a number that, of reasons. That is, I agree with you completely. I mean, that is clear proof positive that this is in no way, shape, or form a justice system. It's sort of a conveyor belt, you know, through which people go who've been accused of doing something that, you know, really may not even in a moral sense be be hugely, hugely blameworthy, right? I mean, I think that part of the problem here is that, you know, there's so many laws, so many, you know, it's, it's, there's just too much. It makes me wonder, as I think about this great conversation here, but shouldn't there be, or maybe there already is, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time really thinking about this, but shouldn't there be a formal, a formally prescribed way of dealing with allegations of wrongdoing that must take place before this can possibly the you know the legal justice criminal law system can swoop down and you know sting somebody. Well, well John, let, let me you know to your point. One of our very first speakers was a fellow named Ted Ornston, and he was a judge, and he was a judge at Old City Hall, and so he trafficked all the cases that went through Old City Hall for years, and he noticed that so many of these cases were people again on the margins, down and out, had mental health issues, and yet were getting put right back into the system, ground out, back into prison again, in and out, just this endless circle. And so what Ted did, and again, this would be about 15, 20 years ago, he created a special court. And a lot of these cases, rather than going to the standard court procedure, they would go to the special court. And I think Ted actually was the judge in this court. And it was essentially a mental health court. It wasn't like a typical courtroom situation at all. The judge would sit down and talk with a person who was in the room who had been charged with something and try to understand really what was happening for that person in that person's life. And in so many cases, the individual was having a real struggle with their life. And so the judge would work with that individual and say, well, if you're prepared to maybe see a social worker 
you know, over the next week and come back and see me in a week's time, we can arrange for that to happen. Sure. And so this type of process diverted people, you know, into a, a system of support rather than a system of punishment. And it was incredibly successful. Interestingly, in Texas, when the prisons were becoming so expensive that literally the state was going bankrupt, and this was true, the state was going bankrupt. So finally, there was the dawning light that maybe we should do something other than throwing thousands of people into prison every day. And so they started the process that Ted Ornston did here 12, 20 years ago down in Texas, diverting a lot of these cases into a support, you know, social support system that would help people get on their feet and not, you know, not obviously. And this was so effective in Texas, they were able to shut down completely one private sector prison, which they had been paying an arm and a leg for within two years of instituting this, this type of uh, alternate process. I want to come back to a point that Ben made too. You know, he said, our system today is a lot better than it was 200 years ago when we would hang someone for stealing a loaf of bread. But, and that is true, but also the basic intent of the system hasn't changed in 200 years. It has not changed. It is still a system of retribution and punishment. And when people come out of it, they're in an awful place and they're dealing with huge social stigma. And not, and, you know, if you look at the alternative, which, you know, the indigenous approach, restorative justice, the intent of that is completely different. The intent of restorative justice is to actually help someone recognize the errors of their way, to take full accountability for it, deal with the person or persons they affected in committing their crime, and get them in a path of rehabilitation such that they will not do that again. Completely different set of objectives. Which is also intrinsic in the uh, world of First Nations, that uh, where restitution and restorative justice figures importantly. And uh, we find ourselves, certainly in the West, with a, a disproportionate number of inmates, of both men and women, being Aboriginal folks who could much better be handled by, by their own restorative justice practices and legacies. I'm not uh, up on this particularly, but I have a a memory trace that uh, the sentencing guidelines have been amended to include consideration of that. Am I right on that, Ben? Yes, that's what's called Gladue. Gladue, Gladue. yes, yes. The the problem with Gladue is that, like many of these things, you know, like the three Supreme Court decisions on bail, is it's there on the record books, but it isn't there in practice. So there have now been several studies done showing how Gladue is working out in practice. And they show that it's very largely ignored or built into the bureaucratic process so that it doesn't really change too much what happens. So, for example, Gladue reports, the the reports are written for certain prisoners, but now there's a whole industry of writing Gladue reports in certain parts of the country. And the people who write them are paid for it, of course. And so now the goal is to get the report written, but not necessarily really to know the prisoner or the situation, because that's going to take a lot more time and whatever you're being paid for the report, your hourly rate is going to go down a lot. So you have all that kind of thing happening too, right? Glad you makes sense in principle, although you would also want to say 
why wouldn't you have an equivalent of glad you for people say with mental health issues you know wouldn't it be oh, make sense any, that, yeah or any yeah. any extenuating factor street and insular minorities as justin stone and american court once said i mean i think you know obviously there are people in this world who are you know by disposition pretty nasty pieces of work and you know they enjoy that they thrive on it that's who they are but that, that's clearly an extreme minority the people caught into the system you know and i do not believe that most people who you know get caught up in the criminal justice system you know they don't want to be i mean you know they're victims they're victims of the system and they're not the only victims but i mean they are victims of the system i think well, here's here's an interesting example of how this works, and it goes back to how the courts get clogged up. <laughs> Nearly one quarter of all the cases in criminal courts in Canada are what are called administrative justice charges. That is people who violated their bail or their probation conditions. But we also know that courts tend to be set way too many bail and parole conditions. So for example, you might get a bail condition or a probation probation or parole condition that says you can't consume alcohol. And that is taken to mean you cannot be in a place that serves alcohol. So if you are in a bar with friends, even though you're not drinking, you can be arrested and charged for violating your parole. Now you've got a new criminal offense, even though you didn't actually do anything that was criminal in the eyes of most people, and now you've got another, and that's about 25% of all the court cases. So if you take the, the very famous case of Ashley Smith, the young woman who killed herself in prison, you know, she started out with a very minor charge. And then because she was recalcitrant and didn't want to behave the way the system wanted, she ended up with an endless string of violation of conditions charges. I think 17 of them, something like that. And so for a charge that might have kept her in jail for 15 days, she was there for years and ended up killing herself. And all because of these piling on one thing after another, often for things that weren't actually crimes had anybody else done them. It's incredible. And I mean, that is a, a really serious problem, right? It reminds me a little yeah. bit. I saw in the United States... Uh, I think last week, you know, some new law that's gotten through the House was going to the Senate. You know, any anybody who's not a U.S. citizen who's uh, convicted on drinking and driving charge is going to be deported. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, you know, th this is the type of thing that I, th I think unfairly singles out a lot of different people. But anyway, I, you know. I think there's too many laws, okay? Basically, you want to reduce crime, you get rid of the laws, okay? You know, you want to reduce bail violations, you reduce the number of conditions. Absolutely. But but let's look again at the politics around this. So uh, 10 or 15 years ago, a prisoner named, I think it was Rick Sove, challenged the rule that didn't allow prisoners to vote in federal and provincial elections. This went to the Supreme Court, which said, prisoners had the right to vote. In fact, the court said, the only right prisoners lose is their right to personal liberty. All their other rights as citizens are preserved while they're prisoners, which also is very far from being the case of what actually happens. So the Soviet decision has been observed by the prison system and the provincial jails. If you're in there, you can vote 
on in provincial and federal elections. But the law, the criminal code piece that prohibited that has never been changed. Uh-huh. No government has been willing to go back into parliament and amend the criminal code to get rid of this provision that the Supreme Court has struck down. And not even in one of these massive omnibus bills they put anything oh, in very oh, much. Oh, oh, by the way, here's something else. So, Ben, help me understand. The, the, the Supreme Court recognized the right. Yeah. There's been no change in the criminal code. That's right. So what is the real effect of prisoners who are now wish, wishing to vote? Are they able to yeah. in a constrained way? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yes. So the law is being observed. My point is that governments are very reluctant to do what John is suggesting, which is to get rid of laws, even laws that have been struck down by the courts. You know, if you look at the liberals, when they were elected in 2015, their program had a lot of promises on criminal justice to get rid of mandatory minimums, to make it easier for people to get pardons, a variety of things that, in my view, I think in our collective view, would have been good measures. But they implemented basically none of them because it's just politically you are going to get beat up for being soft on crime. So it's just easier to leave it alone. One of our speakers, Marie Hennen, spoke to that point with some force, you know, that there is no uh, political capital, no incentive for these people to actually make accommodations and to make it more humane or more corrective and rehabilitative. But there's, there's no predisposition to even think about that. Well, you know, Ben, ben makes the point, though, if I'm understanding him correctly, that there's also, there also the, the reluctance, okay, to do this extends even, even in circumstances where the Supreme Court of Canada has said, you know, uh, enough is enough already, so to speak, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the bail example I gave was a good one. Yeah. Three Supreme Court decisions saying make bail easier to get and a government bill that makes bail harder to get. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really, really awful. But it is driven by public perceptions and voter preferences. Do you really think, I mean, I've mentioned each of your thoughts on this individually. Do you really think the public cares about this that much? Does anybody? I mean, I... I uh... No. It's interesting, you know, John, we've taken the time over the years with all the audiences who come to our events and thinking this might be a reflection of the people who are actually interested in this area. Okay? Which is a logical, fairly logical assumption. And what we've discovered over the years is that the people who attend our events are people who either work in the system in some capacity, whether they're social workers, lawyers, police or enforcement officers in some form, somewhere they're involved in the system, or they're people whose families have had direct involvement with the system because one of their one of their family members has been, you know, through the system. In other words, all the people who are interested are not people who just should, think, you know, you think of what should have an interest in this. These are people who are basically stakeholders in the situation. That is our audience. And we'd love to get beyond that. How do, how do we, how does society, I guess we can start here since, I mean, we're all interested in this, obviously. I mean, how do you get people interested in this? I mean, you run a campaign, it could just as much be you or. Well, I think, John, you have to start. 
with where people are at and show it show it somehow that it's in their interest to support a change. So I'll give you an example of this. About a week ago, the Ontario Division of the John Howard Society released a report, a study they had done upon the situation that those people who've been discharged from jail and the difficulties of them getting back into the real world because of all the constraints on their existence. So one example is that, you know, here we are in a time right now where employers are having a hard time finding good people to do work, right? At the same time, anytime someone who's been, you know, through the system applies for a job, immediately employers go rushing and see this person got a criminal conviction and they're off the list. And yet, you know, the track record of people who come out of the system who are looking for work, they have a hugely positive reliability factor in their performance. And so, you know, it's, and again, this is the self-interest of the employer. If you sort of get beyond rejecting people because they've had a criminal conviction and give them a fair chance, you're going to find you're going to get good employees. And part so that's an example, John, of talking to the self-interest of the employers at the basis for making a change, you know, around how someone who's been through the system is treated. I mean, an example could be, you know, again, along those lines, that after seven years after release from prison, not only should they be not described as a record suspension, which is which ARP introduced, it should be described as a pardon, which is much more powerful. And secondly, we should be considering that after a certain number of years of someone being crime-free, as it were, maybe it's a seven-year period, then, in fact, their record is completely sponged. Now, that is that is a really, really good and interesting idea. I mean, it makes so much sense to me. You know, it's just like, are we really living in a world that is so vengeance-driven that these things have to be a scar for life, you know? especially for younger people. I mean, Ben, what, what's the, I mean, you know, you're sort of the, the scholar of this sort of stuff, is, at least that's, that's how I regard you. But, I mean, has this, has Dan's suggestion been, been considered at all? I mean. Yes, Senator Kim Pate introduced a bill to that effect in the Senate a couple of years ago, but it did not get enough support to pass. There is some evidence on automatic expungement also in the U.S. Michigan has a program, I believe, of automatic expungement. What we find from these programs is that they are both much cheaper and much more effective than the pardon process. But, you know, there's half a million people in Canada who have got a pardon at one point or another, and a tiny, tiny number of whom are eventually charged with another crime. But yes, the conservatives made it much harder to get a pardon. And the number, well, they changed the name. You, there is no pardon anymore, as Dan oh. pointed out. But they're also much harder to get and much more expensive. This is another thing the liberals promised to fix in 2015 and didn't. Well, you know, the problem with elections is they're about getting elected and not about doing anything good. Never, never, shall the twain me. But, but what, what's a pardon called now? Last I knew it was a pardon. It's been it's, no, it's called a record suspension. Record suspension. Okay, so close my eyes. Record suspension and pardon's a better word. I mean, no question about it. Words mean a lot. John, there is the collateral question. Is, does 
time served in prison, long or even longer, make Canada a safer society? Does well, that that we actually have a lot of evidence about. There's there's a lot of studies of this in many parts of the world, and basically the I've written a couple of blog posts about this. But basically, the conclusion of the people reviewing this evidence is that at best, putting people in prison has no effect on their uh, likelihood of committing another crime, and quite possibly it ha it increases the probability of people committing additional crimes. It certainly does not reduce it. What about, you know, one of the one of the things that each of you has said, I'm not necessarily in the same language but the same theme, right? Is that, you know, the so that you spend some years incarcerated and then there's this problem of getting back into society. And then, you know, Dan was talking about the issue of employment, employers, stuff like that. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be better to turn, you know, give them all the opportunity to become plumbers and electricians? Absolutely. Just, you know, but the the federal system has um, has essentially eliminated almost all its education and training over the last ten or fifteen years. I, I think you know on, on your point, John. One one small thing is this: that the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in this country are there for a relatively short period of time. So. You know, most aren't are in the provincial system, not the federal system, and they may be there 30 days or 60 days or, you know, 20 weekends. The point about that is that 30 days can, in a provincial jail can have as damaging effect on the rest of your life as sure 10 years in a federal prison. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. But I mean, regardless of the amount of time that, you know, one is incarcerated, it would seem to me that the, the fact of incarceration should, I think, compel a consideration of, of training opportunities and that, you know, to help people uh, survive, you know, out there in the world. And, you know, we got this whole, I mean, I come back to plumbers and electricians probably because I always have trouble finding one to do anything for me, okay? But, you know, that aside, I mean, you know, we have a clear, clear shortage of, of people to do certain kinds of work. And you know, <coughs> I think if you're going to put all this money, you know, and keeping people incarcerated, that you would at the very least do something about, you know, get some return on the investment, you know. Yeah, John, let me, go, let me give you an example of that. In the States, Northwestern University teamed up with several of the prisons in their state. And what they, in teaming up with the prisons, what they did is they provide the opportunity for prisoners who so wished that by they could get, have the opportunity of having a undergraduate degree program available to them that would be provided to them in the prison. And they could actually graduate with an undergraduate degree out of Northwestern University. That's great. And guess what? It's worth yeah. And they had, I think, about a year ago, they had their very first cohort of prisoners who actually graduated, and they were evaluated just as like every other student in terms of their work and the quality of their work, and it had a huge impact on those individuals. This can be done. You know, I mean, it's not like this costs a lot of money. On a smaller scale, it is being. it was being done, at least. When I was at Queen's and you were there, Dan, uh, there were prisoners on day parole enrolled in degree programs. I uh, got to know some, in fact, played in a jazz trio with a couple of them. 
the, the, the federal government has essentially, our federal government has essentially put an end to all of that in, in Canadian federal prisons. The only thing you can do in a Canadian federal prison in terms of education is get your high school equivalent, either your high school diploma or your equivalency, depending on which province you're in. Yeah. That's it. What a, what a total waste of, you know, I mean, leaving aside yep. humanitarian. Yep. Waste of taxpayer resources. That's incredible. I mean, I think yeah. that part of the key to this is, you know, to get the general public to see how much they're being ripped off by this whole system. Mm -hmm. Well, John, you're right. I think, you know, one of the ways of getting people's interest in this is showing the huge waste of taxpayers' money. Yes. That gets people. You'd like to think on basis of compassion, they might be interested, but let's be realistic. Well, when was when was the last time any government of any political stripe in taking office or in campaigning for office said, you know, we think the criminal justice system is a serious potential source of savings? Yeah. I mean, I've never, never heard any political party say that. Uh, but, uh, you know, well, I think that's it. Uh, Even though it's true. What if they did? I mean, I, I think that they might actually get a receptive audience on that. Yeah. We should suggest that actually Pierre Polyev, this would be a great way to save money. Yes. Because he's very keen on that. You know, there there is one program called Circles of Support and Accountability that deals with ex-sex offenders. Circles support the outbound ex-offender, and they have a history now of 20-plus years. And the the level of recidivism is just a fraction of what it otherwise would be when when that when those individuals are in fact made a meaningful part of society and surrounded by reliable friends and think one can make a case there that every one of those success stories is is worth $185,000 a year right. but right. to Jim's to Jim's point on COSA the federal government canceled the one and a half million dollars a year they were there, giving the organization. There you go. <laughs> and that is just, this is so, so crazy. You know, this has been a great and continues to be a great conversation. We're coming up to, you know, close to an hour. And I'm wondering if I think we should continue the conversation with more podcasts and that discussions. But I wonder if it might be a good moment to tell listeners how they can learn more about compassion and justice, specifically about some of the upcoming events. So I don't know, Dan, it seems like that would be a good thing for you to comment. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have a website that's easily accessible, but if you do search compassion and justice, Toronto, I think you will find our website with all of the events there. Past events too, right? They can they can see some. Yeah, we've got a library. I mean, one thing I didn't mention you know, in terms of the evolution of our speaker series is that we didn't have any money to do this. We weren't being supported by the church. It was under our own, our own under our own hat. And but we went around and asked people if they would do this. And I thought, you know, we'd have a lot of people who would be willing to do it unless we paid them somebody with a statement. Every speaker, we've had close to fifty speakers. Every one of them were happy to do this with no compensation whatsoever. These are Lumen. And these are not people who are needing sort of promotion of their brand. I mean, Beverly McLaughlin did not need promotion of her brand. You know, Roy McMurtry did not need promotion. 
Murray Sinclair did not need promotion of his brand. I mean, these people did this because they saw this is the right thing to do. And but anyways, yeah, I think if you're a Globe Mail reader or if you read the Globe Mail online, you'll see the ads there, both in print and digital. And if you want to have further information, Jim, I suggest you pass out your phone number. It's at the bottom of the flyers. I will say that. Yeah, yeah thank you. And I will refer them immediately to you, Dan. Okay. No, I'd be happy to speak to anybody. Well, actually, in all seriousness, compassionate justice at outlook.com. Compassionate justice at outlook.com. If you were to send an email there, somebody can, you know, respond to that. Uh, I I set the email up in conjunction with this. Okay. I know you haven't before, but I thought this might, this might arise. So compassionate justice at uh, outlook.com is where you can send off an inquiry if you like. But, you know, I got to tell you that, you know, Dan has been doing this so long that I think he understands the importance of it, but I don't think he, I think he's forgotten what a fantastic job this, you know, is Dan, Jim, Ben have actually done. It's truly incredible. The speakers are absolutely amazing, unbelievable. And, you know, I admire so much what has been accomplished to your point, Dan, on no money. I mean, it just goes to show you that you can do an awful lot without getting funding from anywhere. And who knows, the funding could even be an impediment. So I would really encourage people to come out. The next one is February the 18th, and that is uh, Toronto lawyer Aaron Dan, I believe. Yeah. And April 7th. You know, I, I think they're all very special events, but an extra very special event. Retired Justice Rosalie Abella from the Supreme Court of Canada will be there. So, I mean, these are, these are great opportunities. And you can get a lunch out of it as well. Uh, oh, you can get a free lunch. A free lunch. I've, I've eaten yeah, That's something we haven't mentioned, John. These events are all free, by the way. Yeah. They, yeah. Well, I, I yeah. would have gone to them anyway. I would have gone to them anyway. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was saying. By the way, John, uh, talking to Rosie about her her appearance, she made it quite clear that she was honored to be part of this this ongoing program and series, and by the 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 kind of company she was going to be keeping. So, uh, you know, we're obviously honored, but so was she apparently. No, I think I think it's a tremendous group of organizers. I think it's a tremendous group of speakers. I just think it's, you know, it really is a great thing. And uh, it's the type of thing that is so, so, you know, it's a necessary condition to beginning to get a rethinking of how taxpayers' money is spent. I put it that way because everybody relates to that. I, by I the way, the, 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 the thrust for Rosie is that let's put justice at the service of law. Or no, let's put compassion at the service of law and justice. I, I don't want us to finish, John, without the three of us are here, but there's a whole bunch of other people who are also integrally involved in making these things happen. A number of other volunteers, some of whom have been doing this for a lot longer than I have. So, you know, they're they're not on the panel today, but there's six or seven other people whose names we could mention who are Absolutely. Important. You know, I, I think they're they're all great. And you know, so you got all these people involved, and it's you know, it's one of these great things in life where you've got a lot of good people, but the whole is far greater than the sum of the parts, I think, also. And 
I don't know if you are comfortable mentioning any of them. It's up to you. But I mean, to be clear, there's a there's a whole infrastructure that's deeply committed to this, right? Well, John, I'd be happy to mention one individual who's made a major contribution, and the fellow's name is Philip Crowley. Now, Philip has been the CEO of the Globe Mail, just retired. He was the CEO for the Globe Mail for 25 years, probably one of the most highly respected journalists in Canada. And I noticed about six or seven years ago, one of us noticed that he was actually a member of our church, but obviously he lapsed because I'd never seen him. So I gave him, sent him a little email, said, maybe you'd like to come to one of these events as a member of the church. He writes back, and I sent him the, you know, the, uh, the webpage that showed all our past speakers. And so he got a sense of the, quote, caliber of, of events we've been running. And so he sends a note back, said, would you like the support from the Globe Mail? And so, of course, I had to think about that for a few days. And I wrote, <laughs> I, we'd be delighted. Yes. The Globe and Mail has provided us print advertising support for now, I'm going to say five years. They have given us over half a million dollars of free advertising to support the series. And that all came about because Phil thought this was really worth supporting. And many of those folks who show up are there because of that. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't. I'm pretty sure that my first awareness of this was through a Globe and Mail, uh, and I'm pretty sure. But, you know, once you attend one of these events and see the, you know, the caliber, uh, you know, I think that uh, you'll probably become a regular. That's, that's my guess. John, it might be worth noting that in addition to the presentation from the guest speaker, there is, that is followed by a forum, if you will, a Q&A. And because of the quality of the people in the audience and their knowledgeability, that that sometimes is the liveliest and the sometimes the most enriching part of the experience. That if you come, you can be part of the uh, the exercise. Absolutely, yeah. They're, they're great. You know, they're, they're great enhancements. You know, to to the presentations on that. Okay. You know, I want to thank all of you for your willingness to have this discussion with me today. This has been great. It's been interesting, but it's what I expected it would be, given what I know about uh, you and the organization. So thank you for that. You know, I would invite you to say a few words in closing. I think particularly with uh, repeating again how people might get the coordinates and come to the events. And the next one specifically with Aaron Dant. Great. I don't know. Uh, we also want to thank you for making this happen, John. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm having a great time, so I even get that as a bonus. Yeah, so the next one is uh, February the 18th at the uh, United Church 35, right? 35 Lytton Boulevard in Toronto. There's even free parking as well as a free lunch. Imagine that free parking somewhere in Toronto. So come on out. I think it starts at 1230. Is that correct? That's right, John. Okay, so you want to be there at 12 so you can eat. And then. Oh, at 11.45, the food will be laid out. 11.45 to eat. Okay, 11.45. But, you know, seriously, great thing. And uh, April 7th, of course, Justice and Bella. Well, thank you very much. And, and again, if any of you have any closing thoughts, comments, anything you want to get into the podcast, I guess now's the moment. 
Otherwise, well, one last thing, John, I'd like to point out is with the free lunch, there's also Nanaimo bars. Oh, you had to mention that. Uh, okay, so in other words, we have enhanced free lunch. Enhanced this is an enhanced free lunch. I <laughs> know yeah, the food's great. I will admit that I like the food too. Okay. <laughs> All right, Ben, any closing thoughts? I guess what I'd say is that, you know, the effort to change any of these kinds of public policies or systems is always a long-term thing. If we look at where it's happened, it's be because people had sustained effort, many people from many places over a long period of time. That's the only way it happens. You know, that's absolutely true, but it's all what it also means is the people who come out to these events and get involved necessarily become part of the yeah. process, right? One of our committee folks who's been here there for most of the time and has committed himself to helping those touched by uh, the criminal justice system he says and i have appropriated the thought for myself is that he says this has been the most authentic thing he has done in his life and it there is something truly authentic about the conversations and the the issues that are being addressed. Absolutely, I mean, you know, you're you're involved in something that actually makes a difference. You know, which is a great thing. Dan, I ended on the Nanaimo bar, Sean. Yeah, All right, good enough. Well, let's let's do one of these soon. And thanks very much, everybody. And again, this is a thank you. Speaking with thank you, you from Toronto, Canada. Today is February the eighth, two thousand and twenty-four. So we're